a lot of people out there, they do believe that climate change is going to affect the United States in a negative way, and that it's mostly anthropogenic driven, but they don't think it's going to personally affect them. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though they need to realize that it's going to affect everyone, whether they realize it or not. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana, a show where I will share all the amazing and exciting works of sustainability happening across the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains to the lush farmlands of southeastern Pennsylvania. By celebrating our community, we can help to bridge the gap between local and international sustainability endeavors. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Davis. Davis is an atmospheric scientist and associate professor of Kutztown University. He would also self-identify as a mix of a physical geographer, atmospheric scientist, and geography gamer. Dr. Davis has a passion for teaching and research, especially overseeing student-led research projects. While I was an undergraduate student at Kutztown, Dr. Davis was my academic and research advisor. Together we looked at how climate change plays a direct role in the production of cotton in the state of Texas. During our discussion, we talked about a variety of issues related to anthropogenic or human-caused climate change. Most importantly, we discussed how climate change uniquely impacts us here in the state of Pennsylvania. We also talked about how policy is important in combating climate change, whether that's at the state, national, or international level. Before we meet Dr. Davis, hear an update about the podcast. Here at the Sustaining with Shana podcast, I strive to create and maintain a space that lifts up stories about sustainability and the environment that are not being heard in our community, along with sharing new and exciting information around these topics that our community may not have discovered yet or benefited from. I cannot share these stories without your generous support. Please consider supporting my platform that I am able to serve you, the listeners. If you would like to financially support the podcast, please hop on over to the Sustaining with Shana website and click on the green donate button found in the top right-hand corner on the homepage. I am looking forward to new and exciting projects and topics ahead. Also, I'm always looking at ways that I can engage and interact with this special community more. As always, Glad you're here, and thanks a million for listening. Welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. 
Uh, and as always, most of my guests I are, I would say, are favorites of mine. Uh, but this week is a special guest uh, because it's a friend of mine, but also my former uh, college advisor, research advisor, and professor in all things geography, too. So please introduce yourself. So I am Dr. Michael Davis at Kutztown University, Department of Geography. I'm an associate professor there. And I did have you in class. I, I think you ran the whole gauntlet, didn't you? A physical, I think so. Meteorology, weather analysis. I didn't take that one. That was okay. the only one. All right. So you didn't take them all then. <laughs> but, you, but you took climatology and global warming, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you took those classes with me. Uh, you did some research with me. We went to several AAGs, including uh, the San Francisco one, which was definitely an <laughs> interesting one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's a whole other side story. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I am uh, the professor at the department, like I said, and I teach a wide variety, wide variety of geography classes, mainly in the physical realm. And I do have... A, I do offer weather forecasts in the daily brief every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, the head of Kutztown Radio, Mike Regensberger, and I do or try to do a weekly uh, podcast weather and climate chat together where we talk about what the weather was for the past week, talk about climate or weather topic, and expand upon that. We've had some guests come on there. Uh, I believe you were on that show once or yeah. twice, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think it's like two times, and then I was on again on one of his other shows, yeah. And then I do a wide variety of talks in the community. I've talked to women's groups. I've talked to uh, Rotary Club. I've talked to uh, just campus clubs in general. Uh, so that's pretty much what I do on campus. Uh, I'm mainly into climate science and my expertise. Um, weather is also one of my expertise uh, fields as well. And lately I've been going into gaming geography where I've been looking at how we can increase uh, geography awareness, geography learning through a gaming type platform, whether that be through conventional or more modern uh, tactics. Yeah, and didn't you present <laughs> was it at AAG in San Francisco? I think it was uh, about ingress. Yeah, I don't know. I know you. I know you presented research at one of the AAGs about ingress. Yes, I presented yeah. uh, on ingress about how you could use that in the classroom, and I have published that research since then. It's in the Journal of Geography, so if anyone wants to check it out, they're certainly welcome to have a viewing. Um, well, oh. And I'm currently working on a first year seminar class that is entitled Exploring Your World and Others, where they get to learn about mapping through Google Earth. So they get to do a flyover and create their own flying video. They also will learn about more fantasy worlds like uh, Faerun, the Dungeons and Dragons world, mm. um, uh, Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings. And then they're also going to come up with a report on their own world from, say, a movie or TV show or something like that. Talk about what goes on there, the relationships between 
uh, different peoples that might be going on. So if someone wanted to do, say, the uh, uh, Star Wars or something like that, I think that'd be a great one. Too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they're also doing a uh, open source game of civilization. So they get to build up their own civilization and figure out how they want to create their own world off that. And there's also the free version of SimCity that they'll be creating their own city and then talking mm. about their how they built it and why they built it in such a way. Uh, how, as mayor, did they address the concerns of the citizens? We're also going to be doing some geocaching, orienteering, so more traditional ways of gaming. Mm. And um, I'm also working on a paper right now looking at environmental themes depicted in video games. Hmm. And I'm also working on some research with tabletop role-playing into geographic education. Interesting. As you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, the game Sims, The Simpsons Tapped Out. No, I still play it. <laughs> <laughs> I just got back into it again, and I could totally see that where um, how like hazardous waste is uh, seen in that particular show of course because of the nuclear plant and and whatnot but yeah i thought of you as i started playing that game again because i know what is it you and dr courtney were like the two that would always play with each yep. other <laughs> <laughs> and since then we've maxed out on level 939 the we've maxed out we reached the level highest level wow yeah <laughs> i'm only at 32 i think so I'll tell you a secret afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so with that being said, with being an atmospheric scientist and being the resident climatologist and weather expert at Kutztown University, I feel like it's always good to start out a conversation when talking about climate change to any listener that might not fully understand what climate change is, is important. What is really the difference between climate change and weather? And what's a simple way to distinguish that? Because I feel like whenever we have conversations about climate change, we always have to start here because some people may not understand the finite difference between the two. Yeah, so that, that's a big uh, problem that I think most people encounter is if we have a very warm summer, people are like, oh, well, here's climate change. Or if we have a cold snap in the wintertime, it's like, oh, where's global warming when you need it? And the thing is, you're looking at climate with the long-term average of these conditions compared to weather, which is more of the instantaneous what's happening today kind of uh, assessment of the atmosphere. And these two can be very different. And when you look at, say, an analogy you can draw from it, one is weather would be an instantaneous one measurement from a particular location and time similar to say a tree. If you have one tree that's just out in the field or something, you can gain information from studying that tree, but you can't really assess the much broader picture as to what the forests of this region are doing. 
And the forest would be the example of, say, climate. You can study one tree, but if you have multiple observations, multiple trees that you can pull from, then you have a greater sense as to the overall health, vitality, and inner workings of that forest ecosystem. Another one I always hear is, uh, the weather can be your mood while your climate is your personality. So you may have an on or off day, a good day, bad day, but overall your personality is going to stay relatively the same. And if you look at weather, you're going to get a lot of variations between them. Highs, lows, temperatures get much warmer, much colder during the course of the year. That all makes sense. But if you consider the climate where you might have, say, an upward trajectory of that, that is going to pull those highers and lowers along with it. So if we have a warming atmosphere like we currently are observing, that's going to pull those ex the warmer maximums and the colder minimums up. So you have more extreme uh, variations as to what you might be seeing. And Oh, you and I both know famously one senator went before the uh, <laughs> yeah. Congress saying that climate change is over because it's snowing outside and help a snowball on the floor of the Senate. This is fairly similar to saying that global hunger is over because I just ate. So it doesn't give you the big picture is what you're observing. And if you look at cases such as, okay, if it was really cold in North America, like it was in the early spring, because if you recall, some parts of the United States had snow in May this past year. But if you go all the way over to Russia, they were really warm. And in fact, uh, just a week or two ago, Verkhoyansk, Russia, a crossed 100 degrees Fahrenheit for the first time. And they are north of the Arctic Circle. So it was the first oh confirmed God. 100 degree temperature reading on Fahrenheit scale north of the Arctic Circle. And uh, recently there was a paper published, uh, I forget who it was by, but it was like two, three weeks ago, fairly recent, that stated that the warming that we are observing in the Arctic Circle and in Siberia would be nearly impossible if it was not for anthropogenic influence. Wow. So what we saw was, would not be possible if we were not contributing to climate change. Hmm. And climate is going to change naturally. It has done so in the past, but always in a result of a force being applied to it. So the greatest force right now that we're observing is anthropogenic burning of fossil fuels from human activities. That is by far the greatest driver of the climate right now. And we're literally seeing it in the atmosphere. We can look at the different carbon dioxide isotopes. Uh, for instance, uh, carbon does produce an additional isotope instead of its natural state, which I believe is carbon-16. I think. And then you also may have heard of carbon-14 dating, that sort of thing, for mm -hmm. figuring out how old a particular uh, substance might be. But there are other isotopes like carbon-15, which is produced from burning of fossil fuels. And while carbon dioxide 
in its stable form has been similar over the past few decades, if not centuries, the amount of the carbon that is produced through anthropogenic burning, the isotopes, has been going up rather dramatically. So therefore, you have to say that based on that evidence that the amount of carbon being put in the atmosphere is from anthropogenic sources rather than from natural sources. Mm. And you also see things like the uh, medieval climate period, where you had a very warm uh, Europe or North Atlantic during that time, where you had vineyards that were growing in the UK. You had the Vikings sailing from Scandinavia going over to North America. But during that time, you also had cold areas. So that would be in places like Siberia or North America at that time. But if you look globally now, it's warm everywhere, mm -hmm. fairly much. I mean, you could see some very isolated pockets of cooler temperatures, mainly off the uh, Greenland coast where you have the meltwater from Greenland being dumped into the North Atlantic. But by and large, you're seeing temperatures warming dramatically over the course of the globe. And we're seeing this based on actual temperature measurements at the surface. And also the satellite data now is starting to show that as well. So climate skeptics have often pointed to satellite data not showing that warming. But a few years ago, we had uh, published papers that said, no, this actually is happening. I believe that was by uh, Thomas Carl at the Universe, uh, National Center of Atmospheric Research, sorry, uh, that published that particular paper. So the main thing you have to keep in mind is climate change is a long-term thing that's happening over 20, 30-year period, while weather is happening very uh, instantaneously. So you can have, generally, if you have something that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis, it may or may not be linked to climate change. Could it have been impacted by it? Certainly but it does not necessarily mean that climate change caused that. So we need to think about causality versus enhancement. Mm -hmm. Well, and another thing I wanted to add as a note in there, um, for the listeners that may not know what anthropogenic means, it's human cause climate change. So anthropogenic is human influence climate change. And it's fascinating especially here locally, how when having conversations about climate change with people that they're like, well, the temperatures haven't really drastically increased or uh, we're not experiencing huge and heavy drought all the time. So it doesn't really affect us, but um, it seems like there's more instability and weather patterns here. I mean, that leads into my next question of how would you describe uh, how climate change has affected Pennsylvania and our region here in the U.S.? So climate change is going to have a different impact on different regions. Uh, northeast, where Pennsylvania is located, is going to be a lot different than, let's say, what you're going to find in the southwest or, say, the southeastern United States. But if we focus specifically on Pennsylvania, we've been seeing changes in the precipitation, largely. 
uh, National Climate Assessment that came out in 2018, the fourth one, had Pennsylvania and the general Northeast as seeing a higher amounts of rainfall uh, due to anthropogenic climate change. And we're kind of already seeing that because we, I think it was last year, two years ago, something like that, mm -hmm. Schuylkill County had two uh, thousand year floods in the course of one week. So if you should have had these one events in a thousand years, you've had two in the past week. So something is essentially loading the dice. So if you start rolling it, you're going to get that outcome to occur. So if we start, if I were to say, go with that example there and say loaded dice, how many times you get six, you may roll six, 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 maybe you get a two, then six, then six, then six, and who knows, maybe even you get seven one time. And that is all because we're putting more energy into the atmosphere, which is then creating the more volatility in the atmosphere, which is then allowing more water vapor to be held in the atmosphere, which then allows us to have these deluges and downpours that happen every so often that causes massive flooding. Uh, some areas are drying out as well. Uh, South Central Pennsylvania, for instance, is under the risk of more localized drought rather than the entire state of Pennsylvania in general. And South Central Pennsylvania around the uh, York, Lancaster area, that area is also the bigger um, breadbasket area of uh, Pennsylvania, more of the agriculture in that specific region. And a couple students and I actually did a paper on that and found that the southeastern part of Pennsylvania and down the south central are the ones that are drying out more in the actual summer times and getting warmer. And places like the Poconos, for instance, are warming up as well, but not to the extent that you're going to find in that uh, region of Pennsylvania. Now, that also factors into things like health where if you have warmer temperatures, say in places like Philadelphia, a very urbanized area, you're going to have more heat days, more air stagnation days, and that can lead to uh, triggering chronic respiratory diseases uh, like asthma, more difficult to breathe, ozone being put in the atmosphere so you have the harmful pollutants. You have people that may not be able to take the heat and have heat exhaustion, heat stroke, so you have more trips to the hospital. There's also new research that's showing that warmer temperatures leads to more premature births. So you would be having uh, babies born earlier, uh, perhaps not to the weight that they should be. So they have to go into the uh, PICU at that point. And all these factors go into health. You also have economic situations where say, if the agriculture does not do very well, then you have a sector of the Pennsylvania economy that needs uh, further assistance and funding. If we take that Pennsylvania example again and go with Philadelphia, if it's very warm, people are going to be running their air conditioners more often. So running up the electric bill, which then puts a greater strain on the electric grid itself, which can then lead to say power outages. Or if you run those, or you have the choice of do you pay for the rent? Do you pay for the mortgage? Do you pay for the electric bill? Do you pay to put food on the table? There's going to be a lot of economic 
difficult decisions to make. Mm -hmm. And that all is factored in or ties back to climate change in our own backyard. Yeah, and as you were describing that, I was thinking of a friend of mine from college who I think still does, but at least last year lived in Tremont and Schuylkill County, and Tremont was in the epicenter of those floods, and seeing the pictures that they took of their town and how these homes were just completely washed away. It's as if like, it was as if the soil was so moist and so vulnerable. It was like, as if somebody just like took a handful out of a piece of a cake and like, and threw it somewhere like, oh, in the opposite direction. It's just, it was, it was mind blowing to see. And I mean, it's, I think it's just, this is the new reality we're living in. And it's fascinating how when talking to people, especially like where I live in Berks County, that don't understand that the volume of rain that we get in a single rainstorm is just gonna be continuous and it's only gonna get worse. And I mean, with that, I guess maybe on a little side note, could you talk about more as far as when you say like more precipitation happening in a given uh, weather pattern or a cycle in the sense that what's that called and how does that work per se? So if you're talking about differences and weather patterns and whatnot mm -hmm. and talk about precipitation in general, if you have a warmer atmosphere, you're going to be taking in that more water vapor that can be held. Essentially, think of the atmosphere as a glass, like a drinking glass of some sort. If you pour water into it, you can put a certain volume into it. But then if you increase the volume of said glass, you could put more water into it. But then if you want to then pour that water out, which eventually is going to happen from precipitation, you then have the glass that you originally had, say, I don't know, eight ounces or something like that. There's a certain amount of water that comes out, but if you had it in a larger glass, say like 16 ounces, there's more water that comes out. So you should be having more precipitation as a result. Mm -hmm. But the thing is climate change and precipitation are very, very uh, highly variable, I should say. So when places might be getting a lot of rain, there are places that might get much less rain. So you don't have a uniform distribution based on topography, based on how systems are moving across the area. If you're in the Eastern side of PA, you're closer to the Atlantic Ocean. So there's more in the way of sea breeze and moisture advection going on that particular area versus say central parts of PA where you're further away from those moisture sources. And you have the, Mount, the Appalachian Mountains that pretty much will squeeze out some of that moisture before it gets to you. So if you're in a valley, you might be having a limited rain shadow effect, which then creates drier conditions. And if you look globally, there are some parts of the world that are gonna have much less rain and some areas that are getting much more rain. So Northeastern United States, for instance, they're gonna get generally more rain. If you look at the Southwestern United States, Southeastern, less. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if I answered your question, but. <laughs> yeah, I guess what I was saying is I was going in the direction of like bomb cyclones and the whole idea about the, um, these new like rain, how would I put it? I guess. Rain bombs? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was trying to figure out if what the, what the lingo is of that, yeah. So with rain bombs, you have a thunderstorm that will be producing a lot of rainfall and very strong winds that are pushing down at the surface. And generally, if you have winds coming down very quickly, you have to have something that goes up very quickly. So if you have a warm surface, a very warm surface, that will then drive convection, forcing air to go up, which then causes air to go down. Mm-hmm. But well, those will be very localized in nature, but give you very heavy rainfall over a short period of time. And if you are already in a very dry climate or a very dry period, that water is not going to go into the soil if it's all hard baked and just run off into streams and low lying areas, resulting in flash flooding. Mm -hmm. And I think another port important point to note, especially for uh, the listeners out there that might not know too much of the science behind climate change, but isn't it the more, um, how would I say that, the, the hotter the air temperature is, the more precipitation that sits in the atmosphere. And eventually that has to go somewhere. So then also that kind of creates these issues with rainfall or too much rainfall in one certain area and compared to another area. Yeah. So generally, if you have warmer temperatures, you'll have a capacity to hold more water. And then if you don't have any sort of motion in the middle or upper atmosphere, those storms may just stay in place for a while and rain out. Uh, we've been seeing that too with tropical systems. Take uh, Hurricane Harvey, for instance. When Harvey made landfall in uh, Texas along the Gulf Coast, there was nothing pushing on Harvey. The jet stream was well to the north. It lost its steering mechanism, so it became stationary and just continued to rain and rain and rain. And areas around Houston got, I believe, 61, 62 inches of rain over a four or five day period. So that's almost a foot of rain mm -hmm. in a day, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like the volume of rain was so, was like so heavy that it pushed down uh, the soil or the top layer of the yes. earth. Like, what was it? Like two or three inches? Two or three inches. Yeah. <laughs> Which that might not seem like a lot to some people. But the fact that you get that much rain and just the, the volume of water itself pushes down the first layer of the earth is, is, is fascinating, but also that water has mass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So to kind of switch back to when talking about the climate of Pennsylvania and what climate change means here, uh, Earlier in this series of talking about uh, climate change and the environment and how people relate to that here in Pennsylvania, uh, we talked about hydraulic fracturing and how, 
how that's not only damaging to our environment, but how could, how does that play a role in affecting our climate as well here uh, in Pennsylvania and also regionally? So hydraulic fracturing is basically the drilling for natural gas and oil within the Marcellus Shale Formation, which is found about a mile or so down under our feet. Uh, not so much here where we are in Eastern PA, but closer to central Pennsylvania, north central Pennsylvania, even in Western Pennsylvania, you're gonna have that shale formation. So fracking is much more common in those parts of Pennsylvania than they are down in Eastern, Southeastern PA. And when you bring up natural gas, natural gas is for all intents and purposes, methane. And when you burn it, if you burn methane, it does burn more cleanly than say coal or oil or something like that. So the carbon footprint is generally less than that. The issue though, is the leaking that goes on within the fracking pads themselves. And if you do have a leak within that poorly maintained or not maintained uh, feature, you can have leaks of methane going into the atmosphere. And those, if you release methane into the atmosphere, it's a much more potent greenhouse gas than say carbon dioxide is. Uh, about 80 per times more potent than actual carbon dioxide. So if you start putting methane into the atmosphere, it's going to warm more dramatically than say with carbon dioxide. So then there's also environmental risks involved too with degradation of waterways and air quality as a result from being close to frac pads that result in um, area that might not be able to be used the way it once was. And recently here in Pennsylvania, I don't know if you saw, but the House and Senate passed the uh, House Bill 732, which gave a remarkably large handout, I believe millions, was it millions? I think, like, something of that I think hundreds of millions of dollars to the fracking and uh, petrochemical plants here in Pennsylvania. And that money could have been used, say, going things like renewable energies rather than trying to get the fracking and oil industries that have suffered due to the COVID virus. Uh, the oil at one point was actually negative value on the stock market where they were paying you to take it off their hands. <laughs> and those issues uh, kind of stem, or at least highlight, I should say, where Pennsylvania stands on fighting climate change. If you're willing to give money to these companies over the next 20, 30, 40 years, you have no interest in addressing renewables or tackling the climate crisis within our state. And that also goes into where do we want these jobs to be coming from in the future, considering wind turbine technicians and solar panel installers are two of the fastest growing uh, jobs in America right now. And if you really wanna put people to work, you should be going into renewable energies because that's the way the energy markets are going. That's the way the market trends are generally pulling us. And if we continue to rely on fossil fuels, 
it's going to be more difficult to do that. And we're not really addressing the crisis. We're just perpetuating it and allowing it to fester into inaction, which is what Pennsylvania sadly has been known mostly to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you're saying that, um, so there's, there's a huge methane problem that uh, a lot of scientists and environmentalists talk about here in Pennsylvania when it comes to fracking. Um, compare, so both methane and carbon dioxide are greenhouse gases, but why is methane so much more of an issue? Because for those that do know, it sits in the atmosphere less longer than carbon dioxide does. But why is methane an even worse greenhouse gas to be concerned about? So of the greenhouse gases that are out there, you have carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor, ozone, those types of gases. They're all something known as selective absorbers, meaning they absorb energy at different frequencies. And if they absorb energy at different frequencies, they're going to essentially have different ranges that they take that energy in from. If you take all the gases in the atmosphere and average them together, you get something known as the atmospheric window, which is roughly around 10 or 11 microns is where that peak actually occurs. So as a result from that, you have energy that the earth emits, which is roughly around 10, 11 microns, that is free to escape to space. And that energy, like the window, atmospheric window, will allow that energy to leave and it does not stay within the system itself. If you increase this carbon dioxide, increase methane and so forth, you're essentially closing that window, allowing the energy to build up. Where methane comes in to the grand scheme of things is that you have a much wider range that it actually absorbs energy from. So you have energy being brought into that methane and it holds on to its energy better than say, or at least absorbs energy better than say some of the other greenhouse gases that are out there. Okay, that makes sense. So given to an earlier point you just made uh, when talking about uh, hydraulic fracturing in Pennsylvania and its effects, you talked about uh, the recent bill that was passed, uh, the dirty bill that was passed by our legislature here in Pennsylvania and should be invested in greener jobs. As your perspective as an atmospheric science or scientist, what, what do you think is critically important in the, the post-COVID-19 recovery plan uh, and why we need a green recovery. So going in a little more detail than what you just briefly mentioned about some of those green jobs. So the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly put a crunch on a lot of different aspects of Pennsylvania's economy, society, a whole bunch of issues. And it is imperative that when we 
bounce back from this pandemic, that we come out more resilient, more adaptive, more, I guess, strong, I guess, for lack of a better word, coming out robust, there we go, (laughs) (laughs) out of this uh, pandemic. And it is clear to me that if we want to create jobs that need to come back, if we want to invest in our communities to make them more resilient to economic hardships, make them more vibrant and can withstand these physical and socioeconomic factors, you need to have some plan in place that emphasizes renewable infrastructure. And if you start by having those conversations and moving that forward in that general direction, you can ensure that people will have a job, that they'll have a family sustaining wage and have the opportunities to say have healthcare or have other opportunities available to them, say transportation wise or uh, economic opportunities that will allow them to withstand a similar event if this were to happen in the future. And you already have some countries that are doing just that. New Zealand, for instance, is putting together almost half a million jobs of trying to get their environment back to what they once were because it doesn't take a lot of money or a lot of know-how to have people go out and clean up riverways or clean up waterways or clean up the air or just generally uh, restore wetlands, land uh, conservation. All that can go into a recovery plan that then emphasizes the environment but also puts your people back to work. And if you're then putting more aggressive and ambitious targets in there, like putting in wind turbines or solar energy plants or making more renewables available, retrofitting buildings with uh, more solar cells, uh, making them more energy efficient, that's all going to cut back on costs in the long run, which then you can use to re-energize your economy and really propel it into the 21st century. And I feel as though the United States is really lacking that particular motivation right now, and even in Pennsylvania as well. I brought up New Zealand. There are other countries that are putting together a plan to address environmental conservation, environmental green recovery plans, mainly over in Europe, that really get at how they can tackle the COVID pandemic response and the climate crisis at the same time. Because I feel as though we can have our cake and eat it too by having a resilient plan to make sure people are coming out better on this side and address our communities, address our people, address our energy sources, which then will bring us into compliance with, say, the Paris Climate Agreement or uh, zero energy emissions by the year 2030, which is what the science is currently telling us. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think it seems like it seems like in the United States we're completely behind the rest of the world when addressing these issues and it's frustrating like having gone to the most recent uh, UN climate conference like a month or two before COVID really struck the rest of the world as a pandemic and just to see how the United States uh, that was the first time they really started to I guess begin to pull back when with the negotiations and stuff and it's just fascinating to see the rest of the world uh, discuss these issues and consistently it was it was what the United States Saudi Arabia and Russia were like the three countries that only were regressing on a lot of the negotiations happening and rather than progressing and it just makes me think that now during covid that's that's fully transparent in the sense that you're seeing nations around the world that have been really progressive uh, on those international stages trying to fight for better climate policy are becoming the leaders in green recovery plans and green jobs initiatives. And uh, I saw a headline recently of about the EU and what the EU is doing. Um, and it's fascinating to see how far the EU is ahead of where we are. But to see somebody like Greta Thunberg saying that it's not enough. And yeah, things are always never enough, but it's just fascinating to see how what the EU do is doing is not enough, but the fact is the United States is not doing anything at all. To me, it's like putting a pledge forward, which is great, but these pledges should have been coming decades ago. Mm -hmm. And they think, okay, we just say we're going to give $100 billion to fighting climate change. Well, that's great, but where was that when we actually needed it? Right now, we don't have time and we need to get really ambitious. So we need to start throwing more money at climate change when it was much cheaper to address it in the 90s or even the late 80s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's also conveniently about the same time that um, there's this whole saying out there that Exxon knew and how Exxon Mobil knew in the 80s that climate change was happening and the government knew about it and how they buried this as an issue. The sad thing is that was earlier than the 80s. Yeah, 70s. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking, because wasn't it Jim Hansen testified in front of Congress? And, was that the 80s, though? Yeah, that was the 80s with Hansen. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, they knew what as... They yeah, knew in what, the, yeah. yeah, in the uh, mid-late 70s, Exxon 
knew that carbon dioxide was going to be potentially affecting the climate. And you had um, one of their senior scientists, James Black, that's his name, who went publicly and said that we are going to be contributing carbon to the atmosphere, but instead Exxon decided to throw exorbitant amounts of money at groups that aim to hide this, to essentially downplay it, to essentially deny what was going on by their own scientists. Because in the 60s, 70s, you had Exxon scientists that were actually putting together very good papers that were addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, what was it? Um, when I took your when I took your global warming and climate change seminar class, I remember one of the people, because um, when you said funding money into programs to kind of then begin to deny it, uh, I thought <laughs> recently after, of course, the passing of Fred Singer and how like just some of the stuff that was spewed at, out by these people for the benefit of the industry to basically lie to us that climate change isn't real and it isn't happening and that humans don't have a factor in causing climate change. I don't know. It's just, it's frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So with all of that, said and so with the recent passing of what was it house bill 732 yeah in pennsylvania so with that bill uh and also with which i if i may butt in i do not believe governor wolf has signed it yet yeah i think uh as far as uh up to the point of our conversation i think it's it's, it's on his desk. As yeah, far as it's going. Yeah, it's going to his desk. If not already is sitting on his desk, but I don't think he's he's fully passing it into law yet. So, with that being said, of all those other bad bills, and on a national scale of consistently defunding uh, programs at the federal level, and how uh, Trump has also deregulated NEPA recently and pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, if they ever listened to our conversation, which I doubt the both of them would, what would you say to the two of them as a scientist that specializes in studying climate change um, on how you feel about the current state of the world and where we need to go both politically, economically, and also um, acknowledging science in the process as well. The main thing I would emphasize to the governor and the president would be to listen to the science, that you should listen to those scientists out there who let their work speak for themselves and how they are very dedicated to their jobs and understand the numbers and data that they're collecting and how it's going to impact Pennsylvania, the United States, the world, 
wherever level you're talking about. And when we look at the federal level, it is clear to me, based on where we stand with this pandemic issue, that our federal government does not have any interest in science, does not want to listen to science, does not care about science. And you cannot simply will this away. You need to listen to the epidemiologists. You need to listen to the infectious disease specialists that will be giving you valuable guidance as to how to stop this virus. And the rest of the world is listening to science. And we've seen their numbers cases gone way down. But instead, we consider it a hoax and that it's just going to disappear one day. And instead, we get hundreds of thousands of new cases a day, almost. Mm-hmm. It's getting ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And we're getting thousands of deaths a week. It's, it's getting to the point where you need to get your head out of the sand and do something about it. And that is by listening to the scientists that are telling you that you should be wearing a mask, that you should be social distancing, ways that you can help cut back on the spread of the virus. And I think it was um, report saying that if everybody wore a mask, this whole thing would be pretty much under control in almost a month or two. It's using common sense and listening to what's out there when you should be listening to what is being the facts rather than your opinions. Mm -hmm. And that is the main issue that I would raise with them. You also need to consider the fact that the world is investing heavily in renewables right now. No one is investing in coal. No one is investing in oil. No one is really fully into natural gas. So if you want to stay at the forefront of the energy movement, you should be moving toward wind, solar, and other renewables based on their productivity in certain areas of the country. And you can power the United States exclusively on renewables right now. I would argue that that is indeed possible. And if we populate those areas that can produce, say, wind energy and solar energy with the particular infrastructure, we can then power the entire United States. The issue, though, goes with transmission lines. Yes, they're going to be expensive to build because in some areas like wind, for instance, in the plains, you don't have a lot of people living there, but you have a high productivity. And then if you move that, it may not be as cheap. That's the argument that gets raised. But if you're producing ample amounts of it, that's going to drive that cost down. And we're seeing in the UK places like well, let's take a step back. The UK is going almost two months or has gone two months 
on all renewables. It has not burned any coal, it's not burned any oil, and it's powered their entire country. And the United States can do that too. Some would argue that the United States has a much larger population, so you would have to put much more infrastructure in. But the, the thing is, we can do it. We can mm -hmm. power cities, we can power homes, we can power whatever on renewables today. We can make that change. The only thing that needs to get affected is the scale of the actual project. And if we just have the gumption to go in that direction and stop listening to the fossil fuel industry, you can do that. Um, I'm originally from Ohio, and the big news right now is the Ohio Speaker of the House was arrested by FBI agents for taking a $60 million bailout that he used to, for the nuclear plants and two coal power plants and uh, to gut the renewable energies in the state and the energy efficiency standards. So there are funds going into the state that are trying to produce these strong headwinds for renewables. If we can get through those headwinds, we should be coming out better on the other side. That's what the science is saying. That's what the ec economics of the situation is dictating. But the only thing that's standing in our way is the political barricades and opinions generated from uninformed people on YouTube comment feeds. It doesn't really make sense. And if you just listen to what the scientists, the economics, and businesses that are out there, because believe me, the businesses want to do this as well. You have companies like Apple and IBM and Chase and those companies that are going all renewable, if not all renewable already. And they are still very large, very profitable companies. And they are going solar, they're going wind, they're going non-fossil fuels, and they're still doing well. And if they can do it, then why can't the United States? It's all because of obfuscation and misinformation being fed by interests that would not have the renewables put forth on a global, federal, or state stage. I think you just perfectly <laughs> said it all because I think the biggest thing is it, it just it comes down to a finite level of like, are you willing to listen to a dirty industry that represents the past or are you willing to take that chance and it's not really a chance anymore because we enough, have enough science to tell us that it's not a chance. I saw to... a cartoon recently that said uh, they were in the pandemic and saying, I mean, I can't wait to get back to normal. And then the next slide was, I can't wait to go forward in the future. Mm -hmm. You should mm -hmm. be thinking about going forward after this, not going back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's always something that I always would get frustrated with people, especially the first few weeks of the pandemic. They're they're like, "Well, I can't wait to go back to my normal life." I said uh, 
to them for various reasons, whether it's about climate change to public health to even now racial justice. It's like going back to normal, uh, okay, normal lifestyle in the sense of like we can see each other and not be socially distanced, but I don't want to go back to the life before the pandemic of all these issues that seem somehow okay. And unfortunately it took a pandemic for uh, those who are Harry Potter fans out there will get this reference of like the pandemic was the ripping off the, of the invisibility cloak and exposed these all these other greater issues in addition to a pandemic that it's like we can't ignore anymore. And if I may go back to the UK, for instance, too, at one weekend or one particular weekend, I should say, I think it was last year, they were producing so much wind and so much solar energy that they were able to provide the entire country with free electricity. So you did not get charged for electricity because they just had so much of it. And basic economics would say that if you have a high amount of supply and a low amount of demand, that price goes down. So if you have a tremendous amount of wind, a tremendous amount of solar that's producing electricity, your bills will be going down. And in Germany, for instance, the German population is glad to give uh, 10, 20 American dollars or the equivalent of that to on their electric bill in order for the German government to help transition from a fossil fuel industry to a renewable energy industry. Mm -hmm. And Germany and Poland and those countries have a high coal mining population. And what they're doing is the federal government is talking to those union leaders and bringing them to the table saying, we need to transition to renewables. We need to go this particular direction because it's good for the economics. It's good for the health of our people. It's good for the global markets, good for everything. How can we institute a policy that makes you, you the coal miners, come out better on the other side? Because your job is going to be going away. We know that. You know that. What sorts of programs, what sort of incentives do we need to have in place for this transition to occur in order to make sure you and your family do not suffer? And I feel as though that is not anywhere even remotely close here on the table in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to do it because you need to have these conversations with the marginalized and those that are going to be hurting from this transition and how can we soften the blow? How can we make sure that you are going to be okay on when we come out on this renewable economy based on green energy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could spend a whole, whole other conversation for <laughs> yeah. days or weeks or talking about it. Um, but yeah, I just, it's, it's frustrating to see how the science is clear. The economic case is clear and it's just 
we're willing to just keep that addiction going to a dirty industry. And what are your thoughts about Biden's uh, climate plan? So to be honest, I haven't looked at it yet, even though I posted, (laughs) I haven't looked at it in full detail. And even though I posted it in a, in one of my newsletters recently. Um, And also when we're, we're recording this episode in maybe like a week after Biden released his climate report, but this episode uh, will be airing a couple weeks after this conversation. So to give context, um, so I haven't read it yet, but I might read it before this episode airs. And well, first of all, I'm happy to see uh, the conversation about the fact that uh, Biden is actually looking to, in the same context of like Germany and other countries in the EU, where they're going to the people who are most affected or the people who are the most knowledgeable about these issues. So I was really impressed to see of how um, how Varshney, I forget what her last name is. Uh, Thank you, from the Sunrise Movement and one of the main founders of the Sunrise Movement and how she was on Biden's roundtable discussion team in order to draft that climate action plan in the first place. So for all those progressives or skeptics out there of Joe Biden, um, it gives me a little more hope about his plan because of the fact that he's looking specifically towards the people who know the most about it uh, and drafting a plan from that. And uh, also with that, I find it really impressive that he's willing to put in a climate and jobs plan, invest $2 trillion into that. And I haven't looked at where the sources of the money will be coming from. I assume it's going to- Corporate tech. That and is some of the money also coming from uh, reallocating money from uh, other departments in the federal government that maybe spend too much on unnecessary things? Total honesty for me on the Biden deal. I will preface this by saying that when Biden was becoming the presumptive candidate and before he came up with this climate plan that he announced, I had very deep skepticism with Biden. I personally, if it was Biden and Trump at my two choices, I was heavily leaning toward third party Mm -hmm. because to me, Trump's climate plan, if you want to call it that, (laughs) is a shotgun to the head. Yeah, yeah. Biden's plan was a handgun to the head. Either way, you're dead at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So none of their policies addressed what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And I was dead set on doing that. I got a lot of flack for it, but like the environment is my main issue and neither of those candidates are to the level of where we need to be. Then when 
uh, Biden announced that he had his um, climate task force, as you mentioned, headed by Marshini Prakash and uh, AOC and John Kerry, all huge champions of the climate. I said to myself, okay, I can maybe stomach it, mm-hmm. voting for Biden. But then when this climate plan came out, I have a lot more palatable views about Biden. I feel as though he's really listened to progressives about this and that he's moving in the direction that needs to be done. He's mainly looking at uh, getting us 100% renewable energies by 2035, which is ambitious, but the biggest critique I have of that is it's not ambitious enough. We need to get 100% renewables by 2030, if not earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we have the time to go to 2035. Mm-hmm. Heck, I don't even know if we have time to go to 2030 at this point. Yeah. And there's going to be $2 trillion as opposed to his $1.7 trillion spent in a much quicker time frame and going toward frontline communities, going toward uh, creating climate cores that'll be addressing things like wetland restoration, uh, energy efficiencies, uh, installing different uh, green energy infrastructure, uh, mangrove planting, uh, those sorts of things. And it also creates a racial justice wing, especially an environmental justice wing of the Justice Department to help bring those uh, communities of color and marginalized and minority people actually being listened to because there's a disproportionately amount of communities that are people of color that are dealing with terrible water quality, terrible air quality, and we need to address that because if we don't bring everybody along for the ride, it's going to be very difficult to move this ship forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one point that you just made there and something that we talked about um, before uh, this conversation that I really want to highlight is you talked about the fact that we can't wait till 2035 and we can't wait till 2030, which was an important year that uh, a couple years ago in the International Governmental Panel on Climate Change really said that that's like the tipping point if we don't really have bold progressive uh, action around the world addressing climate change. But talk about this report that came out earlier this week that discussed the fact that maybe 20, we're past the point that in 2020, we've already hit that point or um, 2030 is, and we're we're going to get there, yeah. I'm not quite familiar with something addressing that particular topic that came out recently, although there was one that came out, uh, I believe it was Journal of Geophysical Review, that looked at the climate sensitivity of the planet and said that the 
best case scenarios, the ones that go 1.5 Celsius, two degrees Celsius, are probably not an option right now. Instead, yeah, you're probably favoring think. more of the upper and mid portions of that, the ones ranging from two and a half to almost four and a half degrees Celsius uh, warming. Yeah. So th those are being favored based on multiple lines of evidence that have been done in previous literature and also in situ and satellite observations that are factoring into that as well. Yeah. So that was, so uh, yeah, I, I misspoke as far as the context of it, but what you, what you said is the fact that um, the rate at which we're warming, we're not going to look at 1.5 degrees or two degrees Celsius at this point. Yeah. The Paris climate agreement set out the two degrees Celsius threshold by 2050. It's, it probably should have been more like 1.5, one and a half degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. If we already go past that, which we've already gone past two degrees Celsius warming in the Northern hemisphere during the summertime. So we've already passed that threshold. It's not meaning anything. And that's some of the criticisms of the Paris climate agreement is that while it's great, it doesn't have any teeth to it. Mm -hmm. And you cannot, the pledges that have been put forth are insufficient to actually get us there. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to our argument of where was this back in the 90s and 2000s when we still had time, as opposed to now when we should be taking huge strides toward reducing our carbon footprint. We're just taking more or less baby steps, if not small steps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, is there's and there's so many different factors with it, and um, I feel like we could we could go on forever about it. But um, before kind of that'll be for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, many more to come for sure. Um, so before kind of wrapping up, do you have any last thoughts before I kind of ask you some? more lighthearted, fun questions to kind of finish us off. Uh, let's see here. Do I have any? Um, no, not really. Oh, uh, I will say uh, John Lewis. He was a big proponent of the Green New Deal. And he did speak for a lot of the marginalized, of course, from his civil rights resume that's quite extensive. And he also felt the same way toward air pollution, water pollution, and the future. Mm -hmm. And I shared a quote with him, or from him, I should say, uh, just the other day, if I could actually find myself here. <laughs> uh, where was it? I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, come on, load up. Uh, do, do, do. Uh, nothing can stop the power of a committed and determined people to make a difference in our society. Just wanted to close with that. What a way to sum that up. So uh, I think that's a perfect segue into kind of a little more few lighthearted questions to send us off. So um, some of them are lighthearted, some of them are serious, but not as heavy, I think, as what we talked about. So what is your definition of sustainability that you would say? So I had to think about this for a while. 
But then I decided that to me, it's more of the ability to endure hardships without causing harm to yourself or others. Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. I think that's important because it's. <sighs> because we're going to have to become more sustainable in the future. There are going to be plenty of hardships coming down the path, whether that be on social fronts, whether that be on economic fronts, whether that be on environmental fronts, whether it be on some other front that I can't even think of right now. And we also need to stop thinking about ourselves and think about everyone because mm -hmm. we are all in this together. We're all in the same boat and we're either going to rise to meet this or we're going to be crushed by it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've always like, been fascinating and how like human behavior and climate change go together. So I, I find it fascinating to see like where these new diverging fields will be created because like, like you said, it's, it's more than just being sustainable and cutting your carbon footprint, but it's a whole holistic uh, across the board issue. Uh, so I also think that we yeah. need to think that climate change is going to mm -hmm. impact us directly. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people out there, they do believe that climate change is going to affect the United States in a negative way, and that it's mostly anthropogenic driven, but they don't think it's going to personally affect them. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though they need to realize that it's going to affect everyone, whether they realize it or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So with your definition of sustainability, uh, if you could sum that into one word or one word that you think of whenever you think of environmental sustainability, what would it be? To me, the one word that I came up with was smart. I okay. feel as though you need to think about how to get from point A to point B in a sustainable way. You need to have a way to chart a path forward, a way of getting you to that sustainability goal, but then also a plan in place to manage that, essentially keep yourself in a sustainable way because the one problem with sustainability is that you need to sustain it. And if you are unable to sustain that sustainable growth, then you fail to plan for that. Mm -hmm. But if you've come up with a great plan and are able to craft out all the different ways forward and what could potentially go wrong and what could potentially go right, you may even be able to get that sustainability kind of working automatically and you don't have to do anything to sustain it because it's self-sustaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel as though we need to have these identifiable concrete goals when moving forward to really make sure the sustainability is met and that we stay at that level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, on a little more lighthearted, what, do you have a favorite vegan dish and what is it? Uh, Wife and I, we have our 
uh, dish that we like that's a uh, roasted cauliflower barbecue pizza. Mm. Really good. We make our own dough and we roast cauliflower and then put barbecue sauce on it and then we're good to go. How does your, how do your kids feel about that? Do they like it? Uh, Noah likes pizza. <laughs> so <laughs> in general, he's not a big fan of the crust yet, but he just likes pizza. And then Robin doesn't eat anything yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so for me, I recently made falafels and I don't know, for a while, the whole entire time I've been craving them through the pandemic. So um, I guess for me, if you right, want my recipe, I will send it your way. <laughs> I would totally take it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of been my guilty pleasure at the moment is making that and also uh, vegan smoothies with coconut yogurt is perfecto. So um, when talking about sustainability and talking about like the economic side of it, uh, is there a favorite brand that you have of sustainability out there? I'm not that familiar with a lot of the brands that are out there, so I can't really speak to that. And there have been some that wife and I have tried and they're okay, but they're not really a favorite, I would say, of mine. So I don't really know if I got an answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, and I will be honest and full disclosure for this, I am more so fascinated to hear where people come from and what people suggest rather than pushing a business and a platform and stuff like that. Cause I mean, what was it? I had a guest on a couple weeks ago that talks about like women and feminine products. And I was like, I, I didn't even know that that business existed to then there was this other business that was all about like clothes and stuff like that. So it's interesting to hear what people have like come across and experienced. Um, but that's understandable because you're not the first person that's been like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Marketing needs to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel like the, this last question is maybe not completely entirely fair because you're doing a lot of great stuff with climate change and research and stuff. But if you weren't doing, um, if you weren't a professor and an atmospheric scientist, what would be your dream job in sustainability? Yeah, this one I wasn't so sure about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I will say what I would like to be doing is what I'm currently doing right now. Yeah. But I did think about it and I said, the other ones that I would think of would be mostly uh, doing some type of sustainable farming mm. or some type of co-op or something like that. The other one that I had also that I think I would probably favor a little bit more would be being some type of sustainable planner for a town or a city and designing the infrastructure in mind with 100% sustainability within those towns or cities. Mm -hmm. And offer some type of blueprint for how communities can go forward on that. Hmm. 
That's interesting that you say that because I thought of um, Bradley Flem, that's Westchester University Sustainability Director. That he, that's what he did before he went to Westchester to do their sustainability uh, office and and planning there. So. I don't know. That gives me an idea to interview Brad and to see like his perspective now working at a university. But I can see that as far as what municipal planning could look like. And I mean, for Kutztown University and the community, I feel like they would definitely benefit from that for sure. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Well, this has been an exciting and long and thrilling conversation with Dr. Michael Davis from Kutztown University. And thanks so much for listening to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. Thanks for listening to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. You can now listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and many other platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and, of course, leave a review or comment. To follow us on Facebook or Instagram, go to sustainingwithshana.com. Also, What you read and listen to here on the platform was carefully created and curated content made just for you, the listeners. Any generous donations can help to keep me supplying you with great content. Just go to Sustaining with Shana's website. Click on the donate page to donate. Glad you're here. Thanks a million for listening.